this is Catherine, and I edited today's episode. Two weeks ago, we heard from Hannah Bordorf, who worked on the Xinjiang Victims Database and is pursuing her PhD in Uyghur Studies. Xinjiang has been a news story for a couple years at this point, but these days it's dominating the headlines even more. Just this week, The New Yorker put out an extensive profile of a woman who escaped from the government crackdown, and major brands like H&M are being shut out of the Chinese economy after pledging to stop sourcing cotton from Xinjiang. Today you'll hear from a Xinjiang native who went from being very head down and apolitical to starting a global activist movement in the Xinjiang diaspora. How did he make such a huge transformation? Here's Paul to help Halmarat Hari Uyghur tell his story. Hello, this is Paul, and welcome to another episode of the Divided Families podcast. Today we have with us a really inspiring guest all the way from Finland, Halmarat Hari Uyghur, who is a Uyghur rights activist and a doctor joining us for a conversation right before a night shift at the hospital. So thank you so much, Halmarat, or Dr. Uyghur, for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for this opportunity, and thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, we're really excited to get a first-hand perspective on the situation of the Uyghur community. I was wondering if we could start off by learning about your family. And in your blog and on the Uyghur Aid website, this organization that you founded, you write that your whole family, going back several generations, were involved in politics and public service you know, with the Chinese government in some way. But when you originally set out to study medicine, you thought you were going to break this curse of involvement in politics. But now it seems that you are very involved in politics and advocacy. So could you please tell us a bit about your own family and how you became interested in working on Uyghur rights issues? Actually, I... I didn't have any political ambitions until my mother, like 2017, was sent to one of the concentration camps. In the beginning, when I called my father, actually, my father told me the local authorities sent my mother to somewhere like the study facilities. I was uh, I wasn't quite believing that because my mom had major operation a year ago before her detention. Then I want to make sure like she's still alive, like anything bad happened. I was afraid because I'm afraid like my father could be lying to me because that happened before because when my grandfather passed away, he keep that in secret from me over a year. Then I start my research and investigation by calling people in my network who still live in the region. Then mm-hmm. I find out it's something bigger, something serious, something I never thought could happen to, to me or to my people or in that area. Then I contact with my friends or classmates who are at abroad and I learned it's something massive. The thousands or possibly even more people could be detained in those camps. And I, I tried mm-hmm. to find more people and I asked. Almost everyone has someone in those so-called study facilities. And it's not normal like someone like my mother 
need to study because my mother speaks Mandarin Chinese. She don't need to learn language. And she used to work for Trupan Daily newspaper, which is the CCP or Chinese Communist Party owned propaganda organization located in Trupan City. So my mom is retired from the Trupan Daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that she need to learn. So it's like we are not typical people like China really uh, wanted to target because my family didn't have any political ambition. We mm-hmm. never want to become an activist because back to my great-grandfather, we tried to avoid to be targeted. So avoiding politics is one and the only way to keep our family safe. That's the family history that we learned. Like my great-grandfather was the soldier of the Second Republican Army. So if you look at the Uyghur history in the beginning of 20th century, the 1940s, the Uyghurs rise up against the Chinese Republican Army or Chinese Republican militants who control over the region. They brutally crack down Uyghurs at that time. So my great-grandfather was involved with that, uh, you know, the resistance movement. After so-called liberation, he was put to death. After some kind of vaccination, he was uh, he lost his life. We suspect maybe because of his history or the things he'd done before the new government afraid, so did a kind of retaliation. Then during the Cultural Revolution, my grandpa was taken to one of the labor camp. He was there, I don't know how many years. So all this kind of background teach us don't involve this politics. But unfortunately, yeah. after my mother's detention, I have no choice. I have to stand up. I have to say what they're doing is wrong. Wow. And I've seen different statistics, actually, about the number of Uyghur people sent to the so-called re-education camps. I've seen 1 million people, 2 million people, you know, even 3 million people by different organizations. But could you help us understand for those of us who are not so familiar with this issue of why people like your mother or your father were sent to these camps by the Chinese government? To be honest, it's really difficult to answer this question. I'm still trying to find the answer why Chinese government detained my parents. If we go back to this number, yeah, there is the controversy about how many people being sent to concentration camps. Different people, different experts who have different opinions. The most common answer is 1 million to 3 million. I don't know like how to do this statistics, but there are a few different camps I know. So which one we are seeing the camp? Of course, there is a prisons, and before prison is the the Kanshuzo, which is like a detention center. And mm-hmm. before that, so-called re-education centers or the study facilities or something like that. But in fact, it's a concentration camp. Why I say it is a concentration camp? Because how did target people? So far, I know from my interviews with others and the, the other information that I gathered. See how the scoring system they give you points according to your behavior, according to your history, according to your family and friendship network. If someone in your family or the friendship circle or the political prisoners or someone who went abroad, 
you automatically lost points. And if you yourself visited other foreign countries, for example, countries like Turkey, Malaysia, or even some European countries, and they take out certain points and uh, they kind of accumulate all these numbers, then they analyze whether you are dangerous or not. Yeah, and I've, uh, that, I've, that's quite saddening for me to hear because I've also seen reports of different members of the weak community sent to camps and arrested because they had a beard or they were just simply practicing their religion and culture. If, if you look at my parents, you cannot categorize them within this category because both my parents are retired, the government officer. They use it to work for government. Like my father used it to work for local administration. Mm-hmm. And my mother was working for the Turpan Daily newspaper, which is Communist Party owned and propaganda machine. And uh, I never saw they practice any religion. They never taught me anything about any religion. So basically, like, very difficult. You cannot say they are devoted Muslim or something like that because he never practiced any religion. The, the only thing is they are well child. They've been to foreign countries and that their son studied abroad yeah. and uh, migrated the country who studied uh, where I studied. Then I think that's the major thing and why they're being sent to concentration camp. So it seems like Uyghur people in Xinjiang, in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or East Turkestan, as you've called it, or just in China in general, face a lot of restrictions and challenges and the risk of being sent to these camps. But as, I guess, a member of the Uyghur diaspora living in Finland and other members of the Uyghur diaspora, for example, in Turkey or Kazakhstan or even in the United States, I'm wondering what kind of challenges or restrictions do members of the Uyghur diaspora living abroad face? Does the Chinese government still pose some kind of challenge to them? And I'm just thinking about how you wrote in your blog about your grandparents, who seemed like you had a very special relationship with, when they passed away, you were not able to attend their funeral. So I'm wondering if there are travel restrictions, if there are other maybe communication issues that Uyghur diaspora abroad face. If I explain this from my perspective, from my experience, when my grandfather passed away, my family keep this in secret for at least a year or more than I, I I don't remember like year or year and a half so I didn't know my grandfather was passed away that is the major reason why I wasn't able to go back and on the other hand that time I was studying and my economic situation was that that good back then of course because I wasn't a doctor by then so that is one of the main reason I guess why my parents don't want to let me know about my grandfather's death. But when my grandmother passed away, I I wasn't able to go back because the Chinese government doesn't issue me a visa. I traveled China before, you know. 2016, I've been to China. So before that, of course, as a Finnish citizen and as a Chinese national and before that, I didn't have child restriction until this happened. Like, the first they detained my mother in 2017. Then 
in the beginning, I tried to contact with local authorities, just want to make sure, like, yeah. if my mom really being sent yeah. to somewhere like this uh, study facilities, but this, I mean, this concentration camps, then uh, I want to know, like, when she will be released or graduate. I contacted with local police uh, and the local community servants of Turpan, where my parents live. Then they were so rude to me. They even verbally abused me. It, it, it doesn't sound like the our government officials, but mm. something like Mafia or the Bandi. So I feel so unsafe. And uh, I even, you know, the, contacted with the Chinese embassy after they sent my father to another concentration camp. Then week after that, I learned my grandma was in a very critical situation in a hospital. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go to see her and I wanted to know why my parents are being sent to those study, so-called study facilities. Then I contacted with the local embassy here and they says, oh, we recommend you do not go there. <laughs> they didn't issue me visa. I'm no longer Chinese citizen. I was given up my Chinese citizenship after I became a Finnish citizen. So uh, I wasn't able to go. And I cannot contact with my parents until their release, 24th December 2018, after my mom being detained for 17 months and my father detained for about 11 months. Until now, like, she don't have a passport. They are Chinese national, but they don't have a passport because their passport is being confiscated by local authorities. And that's not unique to my parents. As I know, like almost all Uyghurs' passports are being confiscated, so they cannot go abroad. And I cannot go back to see them because after they detain my parents, I've been so active as an activist. I launched different campaigns, and I guess I'm already blacklisted by the Chinese authority. Yeah, I, I think before we talk a bit more about your advocacy and the social media campaigns, I just want to ask one more question about your family, especially because you write in your blog that in the Uyghur culture, this relationship between the parents and the child is especially close and important. And you just mentioned that you were separated physically and you were not able to communicate with your parents for over a year. So what was it like when you finally were able to reunite and talk to your parents over the phone? And you also write that even after they were released, you still felt like your family is still quote-unquote kidnapped in China. So can you help us understand what it was like when you were able to talk to them again and their status right now? I'm the only son or only child of my parents. So in Uyghur culture, the parents and the children's relationship is so close, like uh, Sometimes it's very difficult to explain it to some other people, like how close, because we always keep in contact, especially my parents. They are more like my friends at the same time. We talk mm-hmm. everything. I ask them some opinions and the, because I grown up with my grandparents when my Me parents too. was separated for some time. Then I go back to them. Then I went to the boarding school in, then I went to study in China. So there is a lot of separation, 
but we always keep in contact. I can't even talk to them about my girlfriends, like my crush. I say, uh, like that, wow. you know, like it's not common for the Uyghurs to celebrate things together. I can't talk to them. I say a lot of things like the, it's not like, you know, the son of mother, but I'm kind of, you know, the very independent at the same time because the both are very educated and very well traveled. So they understand they are more like westernized, mm -hmm. but more like the Italian kind, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Then after my mom being sent to the concentration camps, how I learn it, we have this family tradition every year when it's my birthday, I call my mom and my father gives thanks to them to bring me to this world and they bless me with uh, good words. Then we celebrate it together, although we are not in the same place, but virtually and spiritually we gather mm -hmm. and celebrate it together. And 2017, when I call my mother, she didn't pick up the phone. That is the how I learned my mom being sent to concentration camps. And then I cannot talk to my mom. Then after 17 months, when I learn, I can call them. Then I call them. The first thing they told me was like, hey, don't worry, we all are fine, we are safe, we are so grateful that our country, our government, the, the party organized us this great opportunity to study our country's language and uh, the history and other things. I was shocked. It's like, come on. Your first reaction should be, oh, my dear son, I miss you. How are you? Uh, and uh, naturally, maybe we all start uh, a little bit cry. That is supposed to be the natural reaction. No, it didn't happen. And they say, don't worry, don't involve with the other things. Okay. Then I learned that they were in somewhere called office. I don't know what office is that. Then they cannot use the internet, their mobile phones for some time, I don't know how many months, until she can contact me directly. Now, like, I can contact them, but I refuse to use WeChat. So that's why I don't directly contact them, but I contact them via my wife. Then I call them once a month or the once in two months. Just want to make sure if they are safe. And uh, because I'm an activist, then there was a dilemma. Maybe I can talk about it later. So I continued my activism. Before, I have nothing to lose. Because I don't know like if my parents are still alive back then. Because I cannot contact them. So I just want to make sure they will be safe. Or they will be released. Or even if I lost them. One day if I learn it, I can, you know, how to say, comfort myself by you know, the saying or recalling that I at least tried to save them. So, yeah, that was, uh, that's intense that you cannot directly talk to your parents. Even if you talk to your parents, there are certain topics you cannot talk about. Of course, you cannot talk about politics. Even you cannot talk about the, the price of the food and other things. And you cannot talk about the weather. What is the weather like? Is it hot or is it warm? Is there snowing or windy? You can't talk about it. And you cannot even 
talk about your other relatives. When I start to talk about other relatives, their answer automatically would be, oh, they all are fine, don't worry. It's like, you know, very, very formal. It's like we all want to talk the things that we want to put on table, but we cannot. For example, their experience back in the concentration camps and, uh, yeah, and the family reunion, this all this kind of thing we cannot talk about. So that's really painful. And I'm the only son. So in our culture, I suppose take care of them, but I can't now. I don't know. Like it's kind of very painful thing. So it seems like the main reason for you first speaking out was very personal with your own parents. But since then, even after your parents were released, you've continued to advocate on behalf of other members of the community. And I imagine just for yourself and for these other people, there's tremendous risk and fear of speaking out because of government surveillance, because of political issues. So what motivated you to continue to work on this issue at such a broader level. You founded this organization called Weaker Aid. You've made so many videos and very active on social media. So what made you continue to speak out? Well, to be honest, I had a dilemma after my parents being released. Should I continue or should I disappear? Uh, can I be ignorant again like before? Honestly, like after my parents being detained, I did uh, different kind of campaigns. And one of these campaigns is Freedom Tour, which is uh, the serial demonstration. I went to the major cities of the Western European countries. After that end, I went to the different countries where I have a significant Uyghur diaspora community. Then I went to different places. I talked to Uyghurs. I tried to explain them that, you know, if we can't speak up against Chinese government's brutality, against Chinese government's crackdown on our family, on we cannot win this struggle. We cannot win this fight. If you want our family being released, we have to let the world know. We have to let the international community put pressure on Chinese government. So during my travel to different countries to meet with hundreds of different Uyghurs, I hear so many stories, you know, the tragedies. So it broke my heart. There are so many stories that make you think of what is responsibility. And when you asked me previously, one of the questions was, what is the difficulties? What is the challenges we are facing? Mm -hmm. To be honest, like I am one of the most privileged one among the Uyghurs because I'm at the same time, I'm European citizen. I speak different languages. I have a wide network, uh, both in Finland and that abroad. So I can let others know about my story my parents' story, although it's not as painful as others. You cannot compare the pain, of course, but there are so many this kind of stories that those people, they don't know whom to talk to, and they don't know how to tell their stories, and they live in a country that you don't have even a residence permit, and their passports are expired, and they don't even have the working permit, so they are 
living under poverty at the same time, they are under a tremendous amount of psychological pressure from the both, you know, the difficulties that they are facing in the, in the countries that they are dwelling or living now, and from the concentration camp, from the threat uh, comes from China. So they could be deported or exchanged back to China any time if they do anything wrong or the, the, the government of that certain country is not happy about them. But I, as a Finnish national, I can travel to over 170 countries without visa or visa on arrival. Mm-hmm. And I speak the language and uh, I have a good connection. So after I saw those people, I see this responsibility. I never feel that much connected with my own people because as I told you, my parents used to work for the government and we actually yeah. live in uh, different places than the other Uyghurs. We have Uyghur neighbors, but it was like the Han Chinese majority community. And I went to bilingual school. Then I went to inner China, study medicine there. So I was almost separated from my own community. I have never lived within my community after I went to middle school. So I start to understand my own people. After I involved in business, after I talked to them face to face, eyes to eyes, I learned so much about the Uyghur struggle, Uyghur cause, and I learned so much about those people's pain. It might be so political if I would say, okay, after I saw so many things happen to those people, I start to have this responsibility to do something to help them. I feel like I kind of blame myself in some cases because we all belong to one ethnic group or one nation, but I have this privilege and they are living in such a condition. And if I ignore them, that's one of the main things. And the other thing is, I think that's the right thing to do, but I don't want to sacrifice my parents and that's how this dilemma started. Wow. Well, I think, honestly and personally, I think it's so remarkable, uh, not just what you've done on an individual level, founding this organization and advocating on behalf of your parents, but what I find even more admirable is how you've encouraged and gotten so many other people to speak out. And on the Uyghur Aid website, which I highly recommend everybody to check out, I saw 342 video testimonies from different people. And on social media campaigns, I'm very curious to hear from you about how you were able to make it so popular. For example, this hashtag MeTooUyghur campaign on Twitter. So what kind of strategies have you used and how have you been able to encourage other people to speak out and come out and share their stories despite the risk? Like I told you, like 2017, after they sent my mother to one of the concentration camp, I contacted with the local authorities and how bad they treat me and I didn't see any help. Then after this, I, I think it is retaliation why they sent my father to a concentration camp. Then my grandmother passed away. My father is the only son of my grandmother. And she don't allow my father to attend her funeral. 
And so you don't allow me to go to take care of her before she passed away. And uh, even after she passed away, you don't allow me to go there. So you don't give me visas to visit China. So that was the point I made up my mind to openly do something, to give testimonies and uh, speak up against this brutality. Then I learned that social media is a very good platform to start with. Then I use social media as my advantage and I uploaded hundreds of videos. Then all of a sudden I start to have more and more popularity. They start to share my videos, start to watch my videos, send me messages. And, you know, gradually I start to have so many followers on Facebook. On Facebook, you can have uh, up to 5,000 friends, but you can have unlimited followers. People mm -hmm. can follow you just like they follow you on Twitter. I, I have like over 15,000 followers. All of a sudden, the people start to send me friend requests and uh, I become very popular among Uyghurs. Then from that time, I start to look how Uyghurs active on social media. And I'm among those who start to talk about concentration camps in the beginning. I think I'm not necessarily first person, but among those who speak up. Then I find that Uyghurs do, uh, there is no uh, social media campaigns actually held by Uyghur people. So you don't use hashtags. The hashtag movements are not popular among Uyghurs or the, the Uyghurs are not aware of that. So I educated them by starting different social media campaigns so that there is other Uyghur activists as well. Then it was February 2019. Then after Turkey rebuked China, possible uh, death of a famous singer who is also famous in Turkey. Then China replied with the proof of life video. Mm -hmm. Then something comes to my mind, like like in the movies, if uh, you know the terrorist or the thieves, they normally release the video or something like that to show yeah. the police or the families that this person is still alive. And that comes to my mind and China did it. So I come up with this idea that why we all can't ask them or demand the proof of life video for family members. As a human being, we all are equal. So Abraham Hate was the name of this person who was the singer. China provided the video of him why they can't provide video of other Uyghur family members. Then I come up with the idea of this campaign name, Me Too Uyghur, because as a whole nation, we are kind of being, you know, abused by China by the sending over the most precious family members into concentration camps. So I want to link this with the Me Too movement, but on the other level. So then I say it, Me Too Uyghur. <laughs> And how I come up with this hashtag, there's another story is like, because in Uyghur, if you say, I am an Uyghur too, we say, Manmu Uyghur. If you directly translate it the word by word into English, it's like, I too Uyghur, or mm -hmm. I also Uyghur. So I change it a little bit. I say, me too Uyghur. So it can be, you know, the different vision of Me Too movement. At the same time, it is direct translation. 
of the world that I am able to. Hmm. And have you noticed any common trends or themes among the people that have participated in this campaign or the stories that you have received? For example, are the majority of them coming from a specific country or a specific age? Or what have you observed about these testimonies and the people who participated? Uh, to be honest, I wasn't able to check every testimony after this MeToo Uyghur movement. The hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs who were keeping silent before they joined this campaign, they uploaded the videos or the pictures of the relatives who are in detention, and they used the hashtag MeToo Uyghur. So it's from all over not only Europe, but also in America and Turkey, and there are mm-hmm. some people from Central Asia and even from Japan and other Asian countries. The Uyghurs who live there secretly, they yeah. also uploaded some pictures, not necessarily their own, but their relatives or friends' picture on social media. So by clicking the hashtag MeTooUyghur, we could easily find them and accumulate them into one database. So uh, I think someone is doing that. The majority of Uyghur population who migrated abroad is currently located in Turkey. And the second biggest could be in America and Japan and the entire Europe altogether in the beginning of 2018. That was the top or the peak by 2019, after so many video testimonies being uploaded, but people still think that there is no reaction from the international community. They start to worry, and after China rebuking, uh, responding with video, this rebuking, and people worried, okay, uh, so far we did so many things. If this happened, it's like China winning this media war. They tried fighting back and they are winning. So what we can do? And people all are worrying at that time. And after I started the social media campaign and thanks to other campaigns we previously initiated. So people are educated how to take part of this kind of campaigns. That is the secret of success of this campaign. The right time, right moment, right situation, and the Mm -hmm. right social desire. Yeah. So looking back... You know, you've now worked on this issue for over two years, and it's become very popular, and many people from the community have joined. And I imagine that there's a diversity of opinions and goals and stories and backgrounds. For example, you wrote in your blog that Uyghurs are advocating for many different causes Some are focused on just freedom and release of their relatives, others for an independent East Turkestan state, others more focused on uh, religious freedoms. While you yourself began as very much focused on your own family and uh, featuring testimonies. So looking back on how your campaign has grown since then, what kind of vision do you have for Uyghur aid and for your campaign moving forward? You know, has this expansion of topics changed the way you advocate for this issue? This diversity, I think it is a good and beautiful thing. People start to know and start to understand how we end up here. 
we need to find the answer. So the people start to have questions and they seek answer for their questions. Then they start to divide according to their opinions, according to the solutions that they think it might bring liberation to our nation or our people. So here, how you define this nation or how you define this liberty or how you define this human dignity, it is another question. So yes, as an Uyghur, I share the same desire as other Uyghurs, but the difference is what kind of a fight I will join or I will continue. It's more like personal decision. The Uyghur 8 is an organization, so we need to make decision altogether. But so far, we mainly focus on the helping Uyghurs to try to create platform for them or try to create network and try to help them to contact with the different international organizations or the media. We are mm-hmm. playing kind of the role of a bridge between the sometimes with media or sometimes with other organizations and Uyghur community. So if you ask me if I will join the movements more like as a political movement or more mm-hmm. like the independence movement, I would ask you, what is your definition of uh, independence movement? I think currently what we are doing is, at the end, we need a solution. What can be the solution? It is a very difficult question. Some say we cannot live with Chinese people because so many things happen. So maybe their solution is like, okay, because so many things happen and we blame on the Chinese people or Chinese population. But... At the end, the Chinese government actually, you know, they made those decisions and those people who work in the system, they make it happen, not, well, maybe majority Chinese. I don't know. I don't have the statistics, but still, there are also Uyghur police, Uyghur government officials who were, you know, taking their role in this atrocity. So we need to hold accountable the system. And I hope they will change this genocidal policy toward Uyghurs and that they will ease and stop their crackdown on Uyghurs. I don't know what is the solution. Uyghurs, how clearly the majority Uyghur, at, at least at abroad, how desire to have an independent Uyghur state. Some call it Esturkistan, some call it Uyghur land or Uyghuria. There is a different division mm-hmm. on this matter. But... My question is, you know, now we say there is a million to three million people are in those concentration camps. What would happen after their release? And they have relatives. This number could add up to, I don't know how many million, entire population under the influence or impacted by this. Mm-hmm. So what people would have experienced will have impact on their behaviors psychologically as well. Imagine the millions of people walking on the street have PTSDs and uh, it's easy to be mobilized by different opinions. So in a right moment, I'm afraid the ethnic tension is highly possible in the Uyghur homeland. 
And imagine China is one of the country who have this economic tie with all over the world, and it is one of the most important economic power or engine mm-hmm. of our time. Anything happen in China, if we could describe it as internal war, that will have a great impact on the entire global economy and the entire global relationship. I don't know if this will lead to the kind of new world order or something like that. I don't know. What is the real solution? For me, I really hope my people, especially my parents and relatives, live with their dignity, live with their freedom. So is it possible to fulfill under Chinese regime? We see so many years the democratic movement of the Chinese students in Tiananmen Square was brutally cracked down 31 years ago. And China still don't admit it. And the people in China, you know, the, within Chinese border, they don't know about the Tiananmen Square massacre. In my lifetime, this 30-some years lifetime, China committed three big massacres on Uyghurs. One is the Barin massacre. It was like 1989, I, I don't remember the year. Then the 1997, there was the Wolja massacre. Then if you recall this Urumqi massacre, or that in Chinese is Chiwu, Shujian, the 5th July, the Uyghurs gathered in Urumqi streets and demand equal treatment of Uyghurs. After there was like, crash between Uyghur and the Chinese workers in Shaoguan and the Chinese workers brutally murdered the Uyghur workers in a factory. Then this protest in Urumqi was a brutal crackdown. I don't know how many Uyghurs lost their lives in that crackdown. So that is the big shifting point of the opinion toward China. Like, you know, if you look back those protesters, the whole Chinese flag, and they went on the street to demand Uyghur autonomous regional government and central government to investigate this murder of Uyghur workers. So it's more like they still kind of have a hope on the government to do something right thing. But they've been responded by a bloody crackdown with the police brutality. Then more and more Uyghurs lose their hope on Chinese government and uh, lose their trust on Chinese government. Then many Uyghurs actually migrated to Europe, if you look at the Uyghur migration history of mm-hmm. the recent years. Then this concentration camp thing started, Then Uyghurs totally lost their hope on the good side of the Chinese government. I don't know, like, that they could really equally treat us, but so far we see, they see us as a threat, even though Uyghurs didn't become so political, but Chinese government afraid. That started after the discontinuation of Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union discontinued at the 90s, China started to worry Uyghurs could become more active and Uyghur nationalism could grow among Uyghurs. Then it would lead Uyghurs demanding more autonomy or even independence, because it's possible in a Chinese legislation or the law that we could demand more autonomy, like Hong Kong and other places. But the Tibetans demanding such autonomy for so many years, it never fulfilled. And now we see what's happening in Hong Kong. That's really disappointing. So this part is really political, but we don't know what is the solution. 
So this question leads us to political solutions. At the end, the solution would come from the political way. I don't know how this will be solved. If Uyghurs have a strong desire to independence, how Uyghurs want to achieve their goal? There are so many questions. Yeah, and it seems like, as you said, there are still tremendous risks that you face and your family faces doing this kind of work. And there's, as you said, so many unanswered questions and so much that needs to be done. So my last question is, what can we do to support your cause and learn more about this issue? By recalling the most painful memory of mankind in the 20th century, I don't want to offend my fellow Jewish friends. If we look back, the American forces or Allied forces liberated so many concentration camps in Poland and other Nazi Germany occupied territories. After they saw the concentration camps and the survivors, they were shocked. We have this historic video footage. I don't mean that the Uyghur situation could be as worse as the Holocaust, but who can guarantee it's not that worse? We cannot provide evidence that maybe something worse really happened to my fellow people, my fellow Uyghurs in those concentration camps. Uh, we cannot wait until those people are liberated from those concentration camps. Then we can show what was happened. My question is, if the things are not that worse, why China is hiding? Why China don't let others to go there if they are really fighting against this extremism? So putting pressure on Chinese government is very important. Something bad happened to other people, at least you can do is do something on social media, for example, or feel bad about it, then tell others this happened. Or even you can send a letter to the Chinese embassy, say, hey, I heard about this, I feel so bad, what you're doing is so awful. I mean, like very diplomatic way, you can use very good words and you can say, please stop it. Those people are also people and uh, respect their rights. Or you can, you know, held demonstrations. We see so many demonstrations all over the world supporting Hong Kong. But we see so less demonstrations or so less sympathy to Uyghurs. I don't know why. Maybe one of the main reasons is Uyghurs are so far away that they don't feel connected. And Hong Kong is always on the media. And uh, on the other hand, Islamophobia, maybe that is one of the main reasons why people hesitate to openly support Uyghurs, because Uyghurs are majority Muslim population, although we have a significant amount of Christian among Uyghurs, and of course agnostic and atheist. So we need to push China, we need to hold China accountable of its crime against humanity. At least uh, you can spend two minutes of time, write your feeling on Twitter. It says, I heard this, we need to do something. Least thing we can do is post something on social media. Thank you so much, Amrat, for sharing your personal story with us, of your family, for showing us your journey from personal advocacy to leading this really international campaign and for just explaining how 
urgent and important this issue is. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for this opportunity. so much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time